Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. We're going to take a look at what has been happening in Ottawa. Diag- uh, risk assessments when it comes to fully vaccinated Canadians, as well as the last day of Parliament, the parliamentary session. We'll find out what exactly took place. Joining me now is Mike LeCouture, Global National Ottawa Correspondent. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. A busy time. Yesterday, the last day of the parliamentary session, all leading to the summer break, uh, trying to get, usually, we would see government trying to pass through as many bills as possible. What happened yesterday? Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of the end of high school, right? Remember those days where uh, you just sort of sit around and watch movies on the last few days? Well, in <laughs> Ottawa, it's the busiest time of the year. They're trying to get as much legislation through Parliament as they can before the end of the session uh, and before all the MPs, uh, so, you know, don't go home to their writings because they turn off all their Zoom cameras uh, for the summer. I, and so yesterday uh, we saw the Budget Implementation Act finally get through. Uh, now that might you know, seem pretty boring to a number of Canadians and, and people that are listening uh, right now, but it's key because uh, that helps extend a lot of the wage subsidy, the rent subsidy um, stuff that we've seen from the pandemic and, and a lot of the, the pandemic aid package uh, that had to be extended all the way until September and even beyond to make sure that this recovery keeps going. Uh, the other thing that we saw go through is Bill C-10. Um, that is uh, the bill to uh, regulate online streaming giants. That's something that has been controversial in uh, the Commons lately, uh, basically because the Conservatives are trying to paint it as the Liberals' uh, attempt to regulate the Internet, uh, where the Liberals are saying, no, this is just really about having those streaming giants pay their fair share. And, and of course, there's C6, which was uh, a ban uh, on conversion therapy conversion therapy, which is aimed at altering a person's sexual orientation uh, or gender identity. Uh, and, and that is something, uh, you know, for LGBTQ people uh, that has been key, but also, um, you know, for the Liberals to try and paint the Conservatives, when you consider that you had uh, over 60 members of the Conservative Caucus, so half of them vote against it, uh, something that, you know, as we head towards all of this speculation of an, an election, either in the late summer or early fall, uh, this is something that the Liberals will definitely want to try and keep front of mind for all voters, uh, saying, you know, look at this, you had over 62 members of the Liberal caucus, uh, sorry, excuse me, of the Conservative caucus, um, you know, voting uh, against this bill, uh, which, you know, many people see as, as quite progressive. And what are your thoughts then, your read on all of the speculation on a fall election? 
Well, it's funny because, you know, how long have we been speculating? Uh, it almost feels like we've been speculating on an election ever since uh, the liberals formed the minority government. And that's just the nature of it in Ottawa. Uh, you have a minority government. It can fall at any time. Uh, but during this pandemic, uh, there have been clear lines drawn. Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, saying, look, I am not going to force Canadians to go to the polls in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, that would be irresponsible, even though uh, Singh believes uh, that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wants to pull the trigger and wants to send Canadians to the polls. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has said, um, you know, I want Parliament to work. Um, but in the last couple of days, he's been calling the atmosphere in, uh, in Parliament toxic and saying that there, um, you know, it, it is a lot of work being done by the opposition parties just to try and stand in the way of getting work done, kind of paving um, the, the road for a potential election. Uh, but when I sit back and look at it, I sort of think, okay, you know, how would the prime minister want to do this? He would definitely not want to force an election only to come back with another minority government. Then it would seem like it would be an exercise uh, that, you know, yields the same result. So why would he want to do that? Looking at the polls right now, it's unclear that he's going to come back with a majority. Um, and also factor this one in. He, he is... Uh, you know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you have to admit he's a great campaigner. He's someone who can whoop up a crowd and fill an arena. If we're still in the middle of a pandemic or still have pandemic restrictions where you cannot have a crowd or you can't fill an arena, I don't know that th those are conditions in which he wants to try and uh, wage a battle over, uh, you know, for an election. Oh. It, it would just seem odd to me if he would try and pull the trigger uh, for an election when he can't go and shake hands, uh, kiss babies, and do all that other fun stuff that people see on, on the election campaign. All right, Mike, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. Thanks so much. That is Mike LeCouture, Global National Ottawa Correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. Right, let's check in with Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. I am fired up about this Britney Spears story. It's quite something. Even if you're not a follower of Britney Spears or you've not paid much attention to what's been happening to her for the past few years, what she said in court yesterday, pretty eye-opening. Eye-opening and just fascinating. So in the hearing, she contested how much control the conservatorship, which is uh, mainly run by her dad, has had over her life. And then the scary part was yesterday we learned had over her body too, because she said she wants to have a baby and she wants to get married to her current partner, her boyfriend of several years now. And they had the conservatorship had an IUD, she, she claims, installed without her permission. So she had an IUD implanted and she said she wants to go to the doctor and have it removed and she's not allowed to. They've also, she said, forced her to take medications, forced her to perform concerts against her will. And she said that the conservatorship made no sense because basically she has to perform at the highest level of entertainment. If she can be trusted to do that, then how is she unable to make basic life decisions? Or spend the money she's earning. Yeah, it seems like such a, a, a difference there. You're right, that she's clearly functioning and making all of this money. And I think she said that to the judge, too. She feels like her family is just making her do this so they continue. They can continue benefiting from the money that she's making. But just, yeah, the allegations that she made uh, during court, uh, I, I, I know I said eye-opening, but also quite heartbreaking. 
heartbreaking indeed. She's banned from seeing her friends who live nearby, friends that live just minutes away from her. She's not even allowed to ride in her boyfriend's car while he's driving. I mean, this is, isn't this abusive at this point? Like we know that she has in the past had, she has called them meltdowns too, um, but that she's uh, had a therapist and she's dealing with all of this stuff and she seems like she's in fine form enough to make some of these decisions when, like she said, she's able to execute, you know, these uh, performances still at like the highest level. So I think it's time for her to be trusted. It's also just so disturbing that a conservatorship could have this much control over someone's life and their body and all their all their decisions, really. Um, she said also that she feels lonely. She's felt lonely this entire time and that she's felt like she's been living a lie, being uh, made to pretend like everything's okay. It, it, the whole testimony was just really eerie. And uh, so this conservatorship is uh, two parts. One is for the estate. The other is for her as the person, which, uh, as you've been mentioning, that's what I think is really shocking to a lot of people. What I didn't see, though, was when we might see the judge rule or we might see something change. Yeah, I didn't see anything on that. I think at this point, um, there there was, I did read that she had asked to speak. She felt it would be fair. And originally that wasn't going to happen. And so, I mean, for people who have been following this closely, because there's a whole bunch of uh, folks who are Britney Spears free Britney fans to the point where they had free Britney trending as the number one topic on Twitter for like almost a month, I think, earlier this year. And um, she's got tons of support. She had a document. People made a documentary about it. There's actually a couple of documentaries now. New York Times got behind it. And so there's this whole movement. So for her to finally say what she has said and put everyone's rumors to to rest and just given us the truth now about it, it's I think it's probably time that things will change, but we'll have to see. Yeah, indeed. Uh, now we've run out of time. I know you were also going to be talking about the road through Bear Creek Park. Uh, maybe we can touch on that a bit later, unless you want to give us a quick update. Uh, just that they're going to have a virtual town hall. It's being organized to discuss the updates and what's next. And it's happening on Tuesday at 7 p.m. You can sign up online. It's obviously free. So look for Save Bear Creek Park Virtual Town Hall when you search it online. All right. Sounds good. Raji, we'll talk to you a bit later on in the program. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. That is Raji Sohal, Mornings with Semi Contributor. And Raji's going to join us a bit later on talking about bike theft and what is being done to try and uh, crack down on the theft of bicycles as well. We are going to take a short break, get you caught up in all the news of the day. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we're taking a look at the economy in BC, the rebuilding of the economy, what the province will look like in a post-pandemic scenario. The BC government has appointed a world-renowned professor to help advise on the post-pandemic economic decision-making. The University College London economist and her team for innovation and public purpose will advise the province as it develops that economic plan. Let's bring in the BC Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, Ravi Kalan joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me this morning, Jill. Uh, talk a bit, if you can, about what role Mariana Mazzucato will play in this. Well, the, from the beginning, we've said that the economic recovery plan will be built by British Columbians for British Columbians. Uh, but, you know, in order to compete with the world, we must learn from the world. And Professor Mazzucato is one of the most sought out uh, economists in the world. She's 
obviously worked with the UK government, Italian government, uh, Sweden, uh, just recently finished uh, working uh, with the UN uh, and uh, European unions on their uh, economic recovery plan. So uh, this is a, a unique opportunity for us to take the amazing thought leaders we have here in British Columbia and also take the learnings from other jurisdictions to think about what is the path going forward uh, 10 years, 15 years out from now. Uh, what kind of cost is it to bring the professor in and to have her in this role? Well, we've got the, her entire team. Uh, she's got seven uh, other uh, professionals that work with her, and the cost is going to be about $350,000 a year, which is uh, not very much when you think of uh, consultants that governments hire. Uh, but what's going to be great for us is that there's going to be an opportunity for capacity building within government, uh, working on, obviously, our economic recovery plan, and also a cross-collaboration of ideas from our business community, from our labour movement, environmental movement, First Nations communities, uh, as well as their institutes. Uh, so $350,000 a year, and is there a timeline for that? It, well, we've only agreed for a one-year term with, uh, with uh, Ma- Professor Mazzucato's team. They'll also be supporting us on our new strategic investment fund, half a billion dollars that we've announced uh, to support BC companies. Uh, just recently, Scotland uh, just announced uh, an investment bank uh, very similar to ours, and, uh, and they advised them on that. So there'll be a lot of different projects as well that they'll support us on. But right now, our main goal is uh, has always been to support businesses and people through the pandemic. But now we're starting to shift to what does long-term economic recovery look like? How do we build back to, uh, to a new normal uh, so that everyone could see a benefit in, uh, in an economic recovery. What do you say, though, to businesses right now who, who might say, this is all fine, it's great to have these long-term plans and to look at the opportunities, perhaps, that are now there because of the pandemic. But we're hearing from businesses in the restaurant sectors, several different businesses that say there's a labor shortage. They can't get workers. They have openings. They would love to hire today, but they can't get workers. Well, isn't that amazing, Jill? Uh, three weeks ago, it was, uh, you know, we can't, uh, we're struggling, we're, we're barely uh, making it through. But with the restart plan, people getting vaccinated, uh, now we have a different challenge, which is companies can't even find workers. Uh, the labor force data that came out during the third wave showed that BC was at 99% of employment levels prior to the pandemic. Uh, and so we suspect that our economy is going to heat up uh, real soon, obviously already has. Uh, and there's three main things that we're working on. One, when the minimum wage goes up, we know more workers come back into the workforce. Uh, so that's already a good sign and the wages w- did go up. Uh, second, uh, we know there's a bit of fear with some workers who've been away from the workforce uh, throughout the pandemic about coming back and working with other people. So we know as the vaccination rates increases, cases come down. Uh, more people are entering back into the workforce. And th- uh, thirdly, we've been making significant investments in scaling, reskilling, upskilling uh, for workers, uh, and that will continue uh, to support businesses to find the workers they need. Are you hearing from businesses, organizations, that the continued relief benefits, and I think we can all agree they were very much needed when the pandemic hit. I know they're not all provincial, we're talking federal as well, but it seems like the ongoing benefits that people are being offered in some cases is actually uh, making it so people don't have the incentive to go back to work. 
We've heard that uh, anecdotally, Jill, um, uh, from uh, some businesses that say that might be the reason. It's hard hard to say exactly what the reason might be. Uh, But that being said, uh, our programs, uh, many of them were direct supports. uh, Many of them were one-time grants. Uh, I appreciate some of the critiques that are coming are towards the federal programs. Um, But most of those programs are starting to end. Uh, right now as well. So we've been encouraging people to find opportunities. And, you know, the the challenge is many people work in the hospitality industry or work in tourism, and we're waiting for the restart to get back into the sector that they want to work in. And so we're starting to see that happen now. And what about concerns? Uh, You mentioned minimum wage. Uh, We've been talking a lot about paid sick leave, uh, which is a welcome change to a lot of people. But there are businesses of varying sizes that are concerned their payroll costs, the expenses for businesses are also going to go up substantially. Well, well, Joe, my family ran a restaurant for over a decade. And so I, I appreciate the pressures. But uh, you know, we've uh, since we, we increased the minimum wage over the last four years, we've made it very transparent how it's going to go up every year so the businesses can plan accordingly. And, you know, quite frankly, we had for a decade uh, the minimum wage not go up uh, under the previous government. And we were told that the sky would fall if people earned a little more money in their pockets. And, and that hasn't been the case. Uh, minimum wage has gone up every single year. We've provided that certainty uh, so folks know how much in every year. Uh, and, uh, and our economy continues to be one of the hottest in the country. And quickly, one other question about innovation. Uh, what about concerns about the loss of jobs when, we come, when it's coming to innovation? Something that's been highlighted in the pandemic, automation, automated checkouts, order and delivery, that kind of thing. Well, you know, if, uh, if there's a couple of things there, Joe. I, I think that some of the technological changes are coming. And, uh, and so the question is, how do we embrace that and then create new opportunities for people for employment in the new jobs that are needed? Uh, certainly, we know that there's some pressure uh, on um, uh, folks that are working in uh, grocery stores, for example, as you mentioned with the tills, but it cr- also creates potentially other job opportunities. And that's what we're looking at with the economic recovery plan is if we're going to see innovation, because we're going to need it as we move forward. What do we want that to look like? How do we want to support it as a, as a government, as, as British Columbians? And how do we ensure that it's both sustainable as well as inclusive, meaning that everyone gets to benefit from the economic recovery, not just uh, the few people that uh, are, I guess, the wealthiest in the, in the province? All right, Ravi Kalam, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Jill. Stay safe. All right, you too. That is Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. This is Mornings with Simi. South of the Fraser, politicians should be pushing for a reduction in the gas tax, not an increase. So says Frank Bucholtz, a former editor and current columnist with the Surrey Now Leader, also a blogger about things happening south of the Fraser. And Frank joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Yes, good morning, Jill. Good morning. This is something I think a lot of people would agree with, that nobody likes the idea of paying more doubtful it's going to happen, but talk a bit more about your column and this idea of tax decreases, not increases. Well, I mean, uh, we all pay taxes, and of course we get lots of services for those taxes. And um, the taxes in Surrey, the property taxes in particular, have gone up dramatically this year, largely due to a parcel tax that the council brought in. 
gas taxes, of course, are another element of taxes. We pay those every time we fill up, and uh, they're used for transit projects. Uh, unfortunately, this part of the Lower Mainland, until fairly recently, has you know had much less in the terms of transit improvements than other areas. That is changing a bit with the extension of SkyTrain, but of course that has uh, yet to be built. So at this point, with the additional, what is an additional two cents uh, that's being looked at as far as the gas tax? Uh, your thoughts are then, or, or your argument being that people who are living south of the Fraser and living in places not well served by transit are, are kind of being forced to pay more for something that doesn't really benefit them. Well, this, and this has been an argument in Surrey for many, many years. As a matter of fact, um, when Diane Watts was the mayor, there was serious discussion about trying to set up just a, a transit authority for the South Fraser region and not be part of the larger TransLink because the services just were not coming here in any proportion to the number of people that are moving here. And I think to a limited degree that's still true, although, as I said, TransLink, I think, has improved things quite a bit. But it's still hard for people to get around uh, by bus here, and especially to take the bus to work if you happen to work in an industrial area like Campbell Heights in Surrey or uh, Port Kells or Gloucester in Langley, which has no transit service at all, uh, and you're still paying for that tax. And you've got to own a vehicle and you've got to pay the cost of maintaining it. And for a lot of the people who work in those um, industrial parks, you know, they're working in warehouses. They're not making top dollars. They don't have all the money to do all those things. And these, this uh, approach to things just doesn't seem to be uh, getting paid much attention to, shall we say. I guess one of the arguments could be, though, and I think people would agree with what you've said, but also I would imagine we're talking about people who also work shift work, who work different hours. It's a big space, a big uh, a space in the city when we're talking about Surrey and Langley. And I mean, the cost of being able to provide transit at all times of day to all of those areas would be, I would imagine, it would be astronomical. No, you're quite right. And, uh, you know, there it is bigger areas. And even the new SkyTrain line that's going to be built to Langley City, it's going to go across the ALR. And uh, thus... You know, there's not going to be very many passengers in the area where the ALR is. And Surrey is a huge uh, geographical area. Uh, It's not that easy to service the populated areas all the time because, you know, you've got distances between them. And, of course, the other thing is with the cost of housing, people are living all over the place, too. You know, they're not necessarily living in one area and just traveling to another. They're traveling, traveling everywhere. And it, it's very it's very challenging to provide that that level of transit service. Uh, you also talk about minimal and fair tolls on all crossings, talking about river crossings, inlet crossings. This is something as well that's been talked about at length up until, well, it seemed to be more of a topic of conversation while we had tolls on the Port Man. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's an appetite to look at that kind of tolling again? I, I don't know. I... I mean, I think it's fair to do it that way if if the tolling was minimal and applied to all crossing. It's much fairer than the way it was done on the port, just the Port Man and the Golden Ears Bridge. Uh, that was very unfair. Um, I'm not sure there's the appetite because I think taxation has been increasing in so many areas, and I think a lot of people are saying, they're just asking, saying, what are we getting for the money we're paying? 
Yeah, it seems that Lois Jackson's Buck a Bridge idea, I'm not sure we're going to see that revived anytime soon. No, I'd be surprised too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it changes it as well? And you mentioned some areas of work where people don't have a choice. You have to go, you physically have to be, if it's a warehouse job or certain jobs, it's not as though you can shift to a work from home model. But we've also seen a big percentage of people do that and there will likely be some permanency to that as we move forward. Do you think that changes things? Well, it's certainly, I think, for transit planners uh, and politicians on the TransLink Mayor's Council and other things, they're going to have to really look carefully at that trend, especially as the population becomes more fully vaccinated and people do return to work, because I think there will be people who are working from home quite a bit more. So there is not going to be the demand on the transit system in the same way that there has been. Um, And I think even now, even though the vaccination numbers are pretty high, there's a lot of people who are very reluctant to take transit. And so, and I think there is going to be a bit of a, of a shift. I think there's definitely a need for the SkyTrain extensions, both in Vancouver and in Surrey Langley, uh, because, you know, those are, are serving a big area and they can be, bus routes can feed into them. Uh, but beyond those extensions, I think they're going to have to look at what is the best type of service to offer how often should it be offered, and uh, is there the demand for it? And, you know, where are the plans for future growth? For example, in the Willoughby area of Langley, there's an enormous amount of growth going on there right now, and yet it's not that well served by transit, and it needs probably considerably more once everything is back to normal. But I think, as many commentators have said, We're not going back to exactly the way things were pre-COVID. There's going to be lots of changes. No, that is definitely, definitely true. We will leave it there, Frank. Thanks so much for joining us and talking more about the column. Thank you so much, Jill. All right. That is Frank Buchholz, former editor, current columnist with the Surrey Now Leader and blogs as well about things south of the Fraser. What are your thoughts on that? Also questioning the reliance on the gas tax in that with more people driving less, if they do work from home more, the push for electric vehicles, the push to phase out gas powered vehicles. It's not going to be as lucrative for politicians. You've got to think 10, 15, 20 years down the road. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is warm. It is sunny. A lot of people heading out on their bikes. If you are somebody who owns a bike in Metro Vancouver, you've likely put some thought into protecting that bike, knowing you can't leave it unlocked, even when you lock it. Sometimes you just can't keep it safe. Bike theft is rampant. Well, our show contributor, Raji Sohal, is here once again to talk more about a program that is starting to really have an impact when it comes to recovering stolen bikes. Hey, Raji. Hi, Jill. Yeah, there's actually, this is some good news. There's been a 40% drop in bike theft in Vancouver since a collaboration has started up between the VPD and a free app that's accessible to all called, uh, and this is the numbers, 529. 529 is a digital registration and recovery system. They have an app and VPD tells me working with this app and then all of its project partners, including uh, bike shops and Crime Stoppers, they say that this collaboration is single-handedly responsible for the reason that VPD are now able to recover stolen bikes. I talked to uh, Detective Rob Burnt from the B- VPD. He's uh, the liaison for 529 in Canada. And here he is explaining how 529 works. 
bikes, you download mm-hmm. the app and you take uh, about five pictures of your bicycle and enter, uh, you know, the details of your bicycle on the app. So that goes onto the app. It's with no personal information. It just runs off your email address. So now you come home and your bike's stolen out of your garage. So now you come home, you hit start alert on the app. And so the information of your bicycle goes out like an amber alert to everybody that's on the app. So the cycling community gets it, the bike store gets it, and the cop gets it, the cops get it. And so now VPD, when we get that information, now we know that your bike's stolen um, and we can go look for your bicycle. So cool, Jill, an amber alert. The same <laughs> one that the cops get is what goes out for when your bike is stolen. So it's just the radar goes out. Everyone knows where your bike, it tries to tell where your bike is. And so before the police department wasn't actually that helpful. They couldn't be. If you lost your bike, it actually took a lot to try and get it back, including having provided a serial number originally to prove that you were the owner. Here is Rob Burnt again. I mean, we were great at recovering bicycles. Uh, always have, but I always I say, you know, we carried the ball to the one yard line and we fumbled it because we, you know, it, it just went into our property office. And in 90 days, the city gets ownership of it. And then they, they sell them, uh, at, you know, at an auction. And so all that work that the officers were doing, uh, you know, wasn't coming to full fruition because we couldn't connect the dots to find the owner. Does the VPD actually go out and look for these bikes? Yeah, we've got actually some days, one of my busiest days was uh, seven recoveries in one day. So those are officers that are out patrolling the area, uh, looking for bicycles, looking and there, you know, it's not just the bicycles, it's property crime. You know, the guy that's broke into your house and stole your bicycle, he or she might go down the road and, you know, steal from the local liquor store or, or break into a vehicle. So the, the department's always pro- proactive looking for those people. Hmm. So what he's saying there, Jill, is that sometimes the app leads them to not just the stolen bikes, but also to other stolen property. And I was wondering, like, is, is this racket really worth it? You know, um, but he told me electric mountain bikes, you know, they're running for about 16,000, the top of the line ones. And they recovered an Italian race, racing bike that brand new is twenty five thousand dollars? <laughs> wow! So yeah, I had to double check on that. I was like twenty five thousand because um, I, I know a lot of cars that go for less. Um, VPD also works closely with Crime Stoppers on this. Their executive director in Metro Vancouver is Linda Annis, and I was curious about what the link was between organized crime and bikes because, to my mind, stealing bikes is cumbersome and involves a lot of labor, you know, and apparently some of these bikes are even shipped overseas for resale. So I wondered if this labor intensive racket was worth it for organized crime. Here's Linda. It's very, very easy to scoop multiple bikes at one time. And when you're talking, you know, $5,000 or more per bike, it doesn't take long before you've, you know, you've got a lot of value in bikes that you have stolen and taken and remarketed or resold them. So Crime Stoppers is asking for tips about how organized crime operates in black market bikes because they actually don't know a lot about it and they're certain that people do, uh, but they're staying quiet about it. So Crime Stoppers, of course, takes anonymous tips. So people are welcome to uh, hit them up, invited to hit, hit them up and let them know what they know about organized crime and bikes. Hmm, interesting stuff, especially going back to when he was talking about the app and how easy it is. I wonder if they are going to get more people buying in on that because before I remember 
seeing there'd be call outs saying the Vancouver police are doing a bike registration. Bring your bike down. We'll register the serial number. But it's a lot of work. You have to take time out of your day. Go do that. And I'm sure a lot of people think, eh, I'll take my chances. I don't have the time to go and do that. But if it's just downloading an app and doing it that way, it seems a lot easier. Yeah, the app also, if you've lost your bike, it instantly allows you to file the police report from inside the app, an insurance report from inside the app. You can also get information on a dot matrix, the same one that the VPD has access to that shows you where bikes are stolen. So say you're going to you know, park outside of a concert venue and, and you want to wonder, is this a good place to park? You can check up that dot matrix and see if people have had their bikes stolen from that exact spot before, how many have and how recently. So it has all kinds of information. And like you said, it's really easy. I have, I'm one of those people who never registers my bike. I don't register it and then it gets stolen and I'm at a loss. You know, I can take a picture of, or bring a picture of myself with my bike to the VPD and be like, hey, this was my bike. That's not going to get me anywhere because they have no way of, you know, proving that it was mine. So, so this is just a great uh, nexus point for um, people who've lost their bikes and, and want to get them back. And their Instagram page is lovely. It's delightful because it, you can just scroll through people who got their bikes recovered by VPD. And it's just lots of good news. <laughs> yeah, much better than having to go to the police auction and try and find your bike there months later. Oh, can you imagine how depressing that would be? Your beloved bike just at the auction. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Raji, thanks for this so much. And we'll talk to you again. Thanks, Jill. That is Raji Sohal, Mornings with Simi contributor.